You're listening to Sourced with Stu Finer. Welcome to Podcast 8 with your source, Stu Finer. Sourced with your source, Stu Finer. I know how competitive the podcast industry is, so thanks for choosing us. Thanks for coming to me. Thanks for allowing me to borrow your ear and your heart and your mind and, God willing, your soul. And hopefully I make all of those feel better after listening to me. My main objective, my mission statement is to entertain and make you laugh. And that's about it. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to tell my real life stories with 99.9% authenticity. And I'm the best storyteller in the world. So obviously when I put that out there, I better fucking perform because I'm not saying I'm good. I'm not saying I'm great. I'm saying I'm the best. Heads, Christian fucking Anderson level. That's who the fuck I am. Old man in the motherfucking say. Ernest fucking Hemingway has nothing on me when it comes to telling a fucking story. Fuck the great Gatsby. I'm talking Stu Fighter and you're fucking not. So basically, that's where we're at. Let's get right down to it. Let's recap the week. It was hot and heavy. Here's my stance. Obviously, the police absolutely slant how they feel about black people. There's no issue about it. In the 50s and 60s and 70s, the Ku Klux Klan infiltrated the police force throughout the country. So it's not rocket science that they hate blacks. Not all of them. I'm not saying all of them. I'm saying a lot of them. I'm not giving a percentage because there's no way for me to quantify that realistically. So I can't blow smoke up your ass like I got a crystal ball and I know what the, the percentages are. What I do know is the Ku Klux Klan infiltrated the police force in the 50s, 60s, 70s. They hate blacks. That's established. Nothing new. So when everyone knelt and started off a year ago, roughly give or take about this week, Colin Kaepernick, where everyone pissed on the guy and now he's a pariah and now he's being shunned and blackballed and cannot even get a job A quarterback that shredded the Green Bay Packers ran for 220 yards at Lambeau Field when no one did that ever. Pissed on the Packers in the playoffs. Brought the 49ers to the Super Bowl. One play away from winning the Super Bowl. It took a goal line stance by the Baltimore Ravens on his last legs, Ray Lewis, fighting for his life. His team was outclassed, outmanned, outhustled, blew the 49ers out. Then there was an epic blackout. And the only thing stopping Colin Kaepernick from having a Super Bowl ring is Ray Lewis and his legacy and his sheer will to not allow the 49ers to score on a goal line stance to end the Super Bowl. And now Colin Kaepernick cannot get a job. So, Colin Kaepernick started a year ago kneeling 
in front of the flag while the national anthem was being played to get attention, not to have disrespect for America, not to have disrespect for the flag, to get attention because of the atrocities to minorities in general, hence black. And he's right. There's no issue. I cannot put my shoes in a black man's body. I have never been told I have to go to another bathroom to pee. I have never been told I have to go to another restaurant to eat or a special side of the restaurant to eat or a bus in the back is all I can sit. Or I could not vote. Or I did not have the rights of other people. Or I was not a slave, and my family were not slaves, and my family was not hung in the streets. So I'm not saying they are not right and they do not have the right to do anything. Look what just happened to Michael Bennett. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you serious? Because the guy was black, somebody put a gun to his head with handcuffs on and they were dead wrong. They were dead wrong. Don't tell me he was, it was, he was suspicious and he ran a certain way and he met the profile. Are you kidding? This is Michael Bennett of the Seattle Seahawks. Are you fucking kidding me? So case in point, it happens. Case in point, it did happen and it's happened forever. But I would never, ever, push my position during the flag because the flag represents people who've died for this country. When that flag is raised and we sing the national anthem to me, Stu Finer, what I think of is the men and women that have gave their life and died for this country or gave them li their lives protecting this country. That's all I see. That's all I see. Now, are we a perfect world? No. Are we a perfect country? No. The transparency that's being breached at this moment is fantastic because everything is out in the open. People who we thought were heroes, uh, AKA Christopher Columbus, now we know he was a conqueror. He was not Alexander the Great that conquered the world in 300 AD and freed the world. Columbus came along, killed everyone, took over, and that's what happened. Not how it was taught, not how people have died believing, not how people believe now, even though showing the facts, that's not really what happened. He didn't come over peace of, peacefully. He came over conquering, pillaging, raping, stealing, owning, be that as it may. Getting back, I would never not put my hand on my heart stand up for the flag because the only thing I'm looking at with that flag is the military, is the men and women who have either served our nation and died for our country or have risked their lives for our country. So it's not me. So I would never, ever do that. But I'm not in these people's shoes. I'm not in a minority's shoes, even though I'm in a Jew's shoes and Jews, like I spoke about in the press podcast, a lot of anti-Semitism, but I'm, it's not that bad compared to them, even compared to women, compared to blacks, compared to minorities, compared to women. So I would not disrespect the flag. I would stand, and that's me, on that point. But I'm not Colin Kaepernick, and I have not gone through his life, and I'm not Ray Lewis, and have not gone through his life. So that's what I feel about that. But 
This week has been tremendous for a lot of action in general. First of all, the Major League Baseball season is coming to a close. The Indians are the odds-on favorite to win the World Series, and I believe they will. I believe last year they lost in seven to the Cubs. Cubs were heavily favored last year, had the best team last year, and almost lost the World Series in seven to the Cleveland Indians. Cleveland Indians took them to extra innings, and they were phenomenal. And Cleveland Indians, Indians had them dead, had the Cubs dead. Dead Cubs came back from being dead and won the World Series. So this year, similar to years ago where the Royals lost to the San Francisco Giants in the Super Bowl, then came back and pissed on the Mets with experience, is the same way the Indians now will piss on everybody. Now, could the Boston Red Sox win? Of course, they have a great team. They have lights out closing. They have rookies. They have veterans. They have a young team. They are great all the way around. But I think the Indians have too much. So I believe the Indians are going to win the World Series, but you never know. You never know. You never know. You never know. So the World Series is about three weeks away from us now. The playoffs start next week. Columbus Day <clears throat> is almost upon us, excuse me, next week. At the Columbus Day Fair, by the way, the 7th and 8th, which is a Saturday and a Sunday, your source, Stu Finder, will be at the Farmingdale Columbus Day Fair on Main Street in Farmingdale selling all my merchandise. So if you want to come on down and you've never met your source and you're home from college and you want to hug it out with your source, or you men of Stu Nation, women of Stu Nation, children of Stu Nation, I will be selling all my merchandise at the Columbus Day Fair. So, love to see you in Farmingdale, Long Island, on Main Street, the 7th and 8th Columbus Day. Now, the Cleveland Cavaliers got much better and a much-needed pickup. Dwayne Wade, instead of making 10, 15 million this year, because he's already probably making 12, 13 million from the buyout from the Bulls this year, 46 million over two years, but he probably cost himself about 8 million signing. So he got roughly 35 million when amortized over two years, 17 half million a year. So really he's getting 17 half million in essence from the Bulls to play this year. Plus he's getting 2.6 from Cavs. He's probably making almost 20 million but only $2.5 from the Cavs, even though they're so far over the luxury cap, it doesn't even matter right now. But what a big addition. Now Dwayne Wade and LeBron James, along with a lot of new faces and some old faces, absolutely can win the world championship. There's no two ways about it, because Dwayne Wade, in the playoffs, can steal a couple of games, and that's really all you need. That's really all you need. And you know Dwayne Wade and LeBron have already won and lost championships together. They know, they know how it feels to play with each other in crunch time. God forbid Isaiah Thomas gets healthy. You know, now you really can't cover Kevin Love. You can't really blanket him because you're going to have to cover, let's say, Isaiah, Isaiah is healthy. Let's just assume that. We don't know. But let's assume by playoff time of April, May, I think he'll be healthy. Should be healthy around January, February. But now the way people come back so much earlier because they have better drugs, better rehab, better things you can do with your body. Isaiah Thomas probably has come back healthy. So you got Wade, you got Thomas, you got a lot of players. Crowder, you got players. So the Cavs are definitely still the best team in the East. The Cavs are better than the Boston Celtics, and they're better than Toronto or Washington or anyone else up there but. The West got very, very interesting, too, with Carmelo Anthony going to the Oklahoma City Thunder. 
Oklahoma City Thunder are absolutely flat-out dangerous. They have a lockdown starting five offensively and defensively. And now when Westbrook comes up the middle and he has Paul George to his left or right or Carmelo Anthony to his left or right, and they could nail a running three, a running two, an open two, an iso, or Russ can take it to the basket and dunk in your fucking face. Oklahoma City is absolutely dangerous. Before the Cavaliers picked up Dwayne Wade, I would say Oklahoma City was the second best team in the NBA behind Golden State. Now it still goes for my money. And I put Oklahoma City ahead of Houston. No two ways about it. Would be Golden State one. And probably one through four is Golden State because they're that much better than everybody else. Then five will be Cleveland and six will be Oklahoma City followed by the rest of the world. So for the Golden State Warriors to lose the championship again this year, I doubt it. They're, go they're probably going to win again. Could Oak City beat them? Yes. Could Cleveland beat them? Yes. Could the Spurs? I don't think so. Clippers? I don't think so. Rockets? I don't think so. Harden in the clutch. I don't give a fuck who he's ever with after last year's debacle, after last year's checkout, after last year's choke job to an umpteenth level, the worst choke job in the history of a championship game of a superstar I've ever seen. I don't think so. So the NBA starts October 17th, but already you're talking about it on September 29th like it's today. So the NBA has done a phenomenal job of building championship teams, building winning teams, building exciting teams, building superstar teams, getting the eyeballs of the world on them because they are fantastic. Brings us back to the NFL and college football, which is right now. College football looks like Alabama, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Penn State, Clemson, and a little USC. USC in the second half. They look like shit the first half. So right now, it looks like Ohio State is really playing well. Penn State is right there. Scare against Iowa, but God, they have a prolific running back that had 200 some odd yards running. He's fucking scary. Leap people, through people, deke people. My God, they're great. All the way around. Iowa played phenomenal. Alabama is just so much better than everybody else right now. Clemson, for the first time, showed that they're not God. Ohio State's just been trouncing people. USC plays the second half of football games. So college football, pretty much status quo from the week before. You still got the top three. Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson, Oklahoma, Penn State. Those five teams. And they, there's not much difference between any of them, be honest. On any given day, any one of them could beat anybody, just the way it is. They both got, all five teams got really equal opportunity. So we'll see. NFL, only two undefeated teams left. NFL's wide open, fantastic, upset after upset after upset. It's going to be phenomenal down the stretch. Nothing decided right now. Still very questionably, the NFC is a one-and-a-half-point favorite in the Super Bowl. A one-and-a-half-point favorite. The game is played today. The NFC would be a one-and-a-half-point favorite. Who the fuck would even represent the NFC? Obviously, the Atlanta Falcons. Falcons, Falcons, Falcons. Now, the Dallas Cowboys looked solid again. Great running back, great quarterback, great defensive line. And all you people pissing on me about the Cowboys don't have a defense. Did they have a fucking defense Monday night? So shut the fuck up. 
Don't tell me I don't know my football. All right, fuck you. Got hundreds of fucking emails. Cowboys don't have a defense. Cowboys have no defense. Cowboys can't put pressure on the quarterback. Did they put pressure on the quarterback Monday night? So shut the fuck up, all right? But the NFC right now is wide open. AFC is wide open. Patriots again. Big come from behind victory. Texans had them dead. So the Patriots have no defense right now to shut anybody down. But that does not mean Tom Brady can't score six, seven, eight touchdowns to beat you. So they can beat you either way. They can shut you down. They can fucking outscore you. So Patriots is still class of the AFC. But I do not know that the Kansas City Chiefs don't have a better team than the New England Patriots. I cannot say the Chiefs don't. Because the Chiefs, to me, I test right now look like the best team in the NFL. Undefeated. And they're fucking scary on both sides of the ball. They got speed. They have everything. Might be their year. Might be Andy Reid's year. Really might. But we'll see. Plenty of football left. So, as I drink my cup of coffee... We can now talk about Hugh Hefner. The great Hugh Hefner was a living legend, and now may he rest his soul a legend. Built Playboy magazine in the 50s, late 50s, and was selling at their peak 7 million magazines a month, a month, a month. Which equates to what? 84 million a year. Wow! Wow, wow! Sex sells. You Hefner sells it. And you Hefner was a visionary. And you Hefner was hated by some, loved by most. Hated by some, revered by most. But men wanted always to be a playboy, which means you would be a ladies' man which means you could get the women, get the ladies. And pretty much, if you're a ladies' man, you got the world by the balls. At least that's what we were growing up thinking. And that's how men were portrayed, especially in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. You're a playboy. You're good-looking. You're good with the women. You're good in bed. You have to know all this and put together Playboy. And I had the chance to meet you only once, and the way I met him was a pretty interesting story. So we're going to go into the Hugh Hefner story. As Hugh Hefner is now dead and leaves us. Married, I think, three times. Fucked umpteenth girls. I mean, tens of thousands, probably. Lived in the Playboy Mansion. And I had one shot to go there. And I think I told the story earlier on one of my prior podcasts. Through an individual named Al Goldstein who owned Screw Magazine. So where Playboy and Penthouse really blew up in the 60s and 70s, in the late 70s and the 80s, Screw Magazine was blowing up. And Screw was a sluttier Penthouse, a sluttier Playboy. Did not get the quality of the girl, did not get the quality of the actress's or famous women throughout the world got sluts. And Screw Magazine was slutty. And it showed cum shots. 
and it showed dicks and pussies and dicks up women's asses, and it was the first magazine to ever do that. It was hardcore. So if you could say Playboy and Penthouse were R's and Light X, Screw is X+. Plus. Screw is NC-17 on steroids. And the way I met Al Goldstein was in South Oaks Hospital. And it's a renowned hospital on Long Island. I think it's like the Farmingdale, Massapequa, Amityville area. And it treated afflictions. And specifically, they were world-renowned for their overeating facility, where you went there for 30, 60, 90 days as an inpatient, and they had a plan to teach you that food was a disease. It was not something you did because you liked to eat. It was a disease. It was a way to stuff feelings. It was a way to numb feelings. It was a way to numb your life. So at South Oaks Hospital, my personal experience, how I got there as an outpatient patient was I was about 245 pounds. This is in 1985. And I opened my business in 82 and we're blowing it up. It's off the wall. And every night is an orgy of food. So when you have unlimited money and you love to eat, you're going out to eat. And we went out to eat breakfast, lunch, dinner. And in between, we sent people for food. And I got obese. So I was like five, four and three quarters, 245. And I could not fucking breathe. I had like a 52 waist and I had a 29 length. Imagine going into a store. Oh, yes, Mr. Finer, what is your waist? My waist is a uh, 52 and your length is a uh, 29. Uh, we do not have clothes like that. Matter of fact, I don't know if they've ever made clothes like that. Hey, fuck you! Hey, fuck you! Hey, fuck you, scumbag! So that's what I dealt with, and then I just went directly to sweatpants, because sweatpants fit everything. One size fits all! And even if I got double XL sweats, even if they were way, way, way too long on me, at the bottom... They hugged your ankles, so it didn't really matter. And I had no ass anyway, so I wore a shirt down to my knees, and that's basically how I rolled when I was fat. That's what fat people do. Sweatpants and a shirt hanging down to your knees or maybe your ankles. So you can't really tell what you look like. But it was comfortable. So at 2.45, my brother-in-law says to me, you're going to die. You got to really get help. I heard about this hospital that you could go into and you could go there as an outpatient treatment. And he had some problems that he also knew of how to solve problems similar to what I was going through. And he turned me on to this place. So I go to this place. And it's 90 meetings in 90 days. And I would go to the meetings Every night that the inpatient people, that at the time it was like crazy, they were spending like $10,000 a week to go there, $40,000 a month. But every night they had a meeting at eight o'clock. 
and they allowed people that were in the program of an outpatient program to also participate at night at 8 o'clock with the inpatient people. Now, one of the inpatient people was this guy, Al Goldstein, that I met. And he owned Screw Magazine. And I've spoken about him on my podcast. And he made such a lasting impression upon me. First of all, he was such a kind soul. He was such a giver. He was such a great guy. He was so gregarious. He was so funny. He was an innovator. He had balls. He had talent. He had everything. And he had my affliction, which was compulsive overeating. So we'd go to these meetings. I went for 90 meetings in 90 days. I went three straight months, every single day at 8 o'clock, no matter what, Monday through Sunday, never missed, ever missed, ever missed, ever, ever, ever. And the normal procedure when you were inpatient there was three months. So you're talking a nice, hefty 10000 a week in 1984, 5, I think it was. 40000 a month, 120000 over three months. you got to be making money. So everybody had attracted, although they were as sick as fucking sick, as sick as me, they had money. They were successful. And most of the time, it was very interesting how successful people were. The way they dealt with success was to eat. And I related to that because that's what I did too. So we became very good friends, me and Al. So much so that when Al got out, he wanted me to go into business with him doing sex phones. And he said we could make millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions. And he liked me, liked my family. And I told you a story already about me and Sandy. He, he sent a limo and we went into the city to eat at the 21 Club breakfast on her birthday. He brought us back to his place. He had like a six, 7,000 square foot apartment on the ritzy, titsy part of Manhattan, you know, Fifth Avenue, overlooking, you know, Central Park or wherever. It was like the best millions of dollars then. I think it was like 10 million in the 80s. Could you imagine? It's, it could be un untold, like 100 million right now. So, Sandy, as I told you in prior podcasts, shut it down. She would not allow me to do sex phones with Al. She liked Al. She saw Al liked me. And that's how she sums up anybody in my life that I bring as a new person. Do they like me? Are they going to hurt me? Are they going to abuse me? Are they going to use me and spit me out? But they knew Al didn't need me for anything. And she also liked Al. But she said, you're not going into business with this guy for sex phones. Because, you know, we spoke about this. You're not going to survive. We'll never be married. And she was probably right. But we became very good friends. Hung out. And obviously, at these meetings, you share gut level. You share your entire secrets about your fucking life. Entire secrets. Absolute secrets. I'm going to give you two secrets I told. And I never told these stories to anybody ever, 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 ever. Because inside the rooms, when you're speaking at these type of meetings, anonymity, what you hear here stays here. You don't repeat it. You don't gossip it. You don't hold it over someone's head. You don't judge someone because everybody's sick at these meetings. Everybody's equal. Everybody's fractured. Everybody's cracked. Everybody needs healing. And this is a way to give closure to things that have happened in your life, you verbalize them, you put them to words, and you put them to sleep. And it's similar to confession, where in a religion that confession is used, once you confess, 
You're absolved. You're forgiven. Doesn't matter what you do, you're forgiven, you're absolved. You make penance, you make amends, and you go forward. So at these meetings, everybody shares gut level. The two stories I told, which I felt was significant and pertinent, were that when I lived in Brooklyn, uh, kindergarten, pre-kindergarten from, let's say, 4 to 11, those are the years that your upbringing really affects you. And your mental state and your emotional state is formed during 4 to 11. So that if there's turmoil in the household, it's going to affect you. You're going to be insecure. I became insecure. Family always fought about money, led to a lot of rage, led to physical abuse, verbal abuse. At I remember three, four, five, six, seven. I'm not going to go through the gory details, but it happened. So I grew up scared. Parents always fighting about money. Money's an issue. Money's a problem. Blah, blah. Fights, 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 fights. And as tonight is Yom Kippur, the high holy day for Jews, the highest holy day for Jews, Yom Kippur tonight, God decides who will live and who will die for the upcoming year. If you could have the vision in your mind of God opening a book and putting your name in the book. If your name's in the book, you're good for the upcoming year cycle. If God closes the book on your life, you're dead! You are dead! Bye-bye! See you! So long! So on Yom Kippur tonight, God decides for all Jews who will live and who will die. And some Jews will fast for 24 hours and pray about their sins for a 365-day year and make amends for those sins today. Absolve, own up, pray, pray, pray. Don't eat, don't drink for 24 hours. And then we start a new year and go forward. So on Yom Kippur, when I was a kid, that was the worst. My father smoked four packs of cigarettes a night. So when he couldn't smoke on Yom Kippur and couldn't eat the next morning, he was a bear. He was out of his mind. He was a rageaholic. He was crazy. And the worst fights I remember happening between my mother and my father from when I was ages 3 to 11 happened the morning of Yom Kippur. So that night before the sun would set, my father would have to fast and he would be out of his mind the next morning. Screaming, yelling, craziness, holy fuck, oh my God. So, part of those reasons and part of those experiences absolutely made me a compulsive overeater. And a couple of the stories that I'm going to share with you right now is when I was a young kid, it also makes sense why I'm so over the top uh, and speak about openly, A, my penis, and B, my ass. And that's why my mantra is to eat ass, lick clit, and fuck like Stu Finer. I think because of the experience I had with my ass and my penis when I was young. So now we're going to go back to pre-kindergarten, maybe about five years old. And my, I had only a brother. So it was me, my father, my brother, my mother in a bathroom. And obviously when my mother went to the bathroom, we were not in the bathroom. 
But when my brother was in the bathroom or my father's in the bathroom and I was in the bathroom, you were able to either shower, take a shit, wash your hands. And anytime I pissed, I noticed that my piss was like a fucking fire hydrant. When I pissed, I had twice the power of my brother and my father. And it just happened. I don't know why, but I had a great stream, a powerful stream. So during the day when my brother was not around and my mother was not around and my father was at work, I used to pee in the living room against the ceiling because I thought it was so funny how my piss can just shoot up and just keep smashing against the ceiling, peeing, 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 because it was a fucking unbelievable stream. So we're living, we're living in the sixth floor, 2662 West 2nd Street, apartment 6D. We're on the sixth floor of a six-story apartment building, and I'm peeing against the uh, uh, ceiling. And this goes on for about five days, and finally my mother is like, Howie, something's wrong with the ceiling. There's a leak. So they bring in the super. The super checks everything out. Nothing's leaking. There's no way it's leaking. I have no idea where this water's coming from. The only thing I can think of is that your children are throwing water against the ceiling. That's what they came up with. Meanwhile, I'm whipping out my dick and I'm peeing on the ceiling like I'm George in the fucking jungle. Like I'm a fucking dog fucking picking his leg up. I thought it was funny. So I thought it was funny that I could just pee at will against the fucking ceiling. Eventually, I told my mother and father they looked at me like I was a psycho. The super said it was the funniest thing he's ever seen and probably kid does it for attention. So that's my one penis story that I told in these therapy groups. That's A. And my parents really fucking hammered me with that for a lot of years. Like you're, a, you know, they told me I was sick, which I guess how many people, how many kids piss on the ceiling? But I'll tell you right now, like a fucking, you would have been so fucking impressed. The flow was amazing. So then the other crazy thing is I swallowed two pennies like two weeks after that. And I blame this all on the abuse. I blame this all on being a fractured child living in a psycho home with screaming, yelling, money, abuse physical, abuse verbal. And I start eating, 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 eating. So I'm getting around to why I'm telling this. So then. I swallow two pennies, probably for attention. Swallow two pennies, probably for a call for help. Get me out of this house, I'm gonna die. I can't live here, it's not safe. Which it probably wasn't, to be honest. Now my mother and father loved me, but safe is a different story. So, I swallow two pennies. And everything was in my mouth. I used to try, like, love to chew on pen caps, nails. My own nails, anything. I would chew on a pen cap. I'd chew on rubber. Anything they gave me, balls. I would put everything in my mouth. Some reason, I swallowed two pennies. Then I was really nervous. You speak to people. Back then, nobody had any information. Everybody always goes to horror stories and terror stories. And, you know, you make a bad situation much worse. And you're going to die. And the copies are going to go into your stomach. And you're going to die. And you're going to choke. And you're going to die. It's going to get caught in your lungs. going to get caught in your throat. Get caught in your stomach, your belly. You're not going to be able to shit it out. You're going to die. So I remember hysterical crying, going to the doctor. Doctor says, don't worry about it. I want you to monitor your shit and your mother will monitor your poopy at the time and she'll actually have to break up all the poops and make sure that the two pennies pass through your body. So this went on for like three, four days. My mother would have to take the back of a comb, stab the shit, and then we finally, after about four days, found both pennies. One came out one day, one came out the next day. 
but already I was like obsessed with shit, obsessed with my ass, obsessed with the pennies, hold to do. So anytime I took a shit afterwards, first of all, I would look at my shit to this day and go, wow, that's a great looking shit. And then when I was young, I used to take, not a comb that she used, so don't get so grossed out, but a comb that she didn't use, and I would like poke it. I would poke my shit to see if it broke up, if anything was in it. And obviously there was corn in it and there was other shit in it. But those two stories are stories that I've never told anybody that you used to hear at South Oaks Hospital all the time. So when I say me and Al Goldstein were tight, we were fucking tight. We were fucking tight. We only knew each other for three fucking months, but we knew stories about each other that no one in the world knew. So you have a bonding. So over the three months, you really, really get close. Got close with this guy. And... He asked me the big question, the biggie. Do you want to go to the Playboy Mansion? What? 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 Now, the normal story at the Playboy Mansion, if you went to the Playboy Mansion, you'd have to bring three girls with you. One for three, I think it was. I think it was one for three. Sometimes it was one for two, sometimes it was one for four, but one for three. So every guy has to bring three girls. But with Al, you just walked in with Al because Al was friends with everyone. And he was best friends with you. And you Hefner loved Al. So I only met you Hefner once. <clears throat> Excuse me. And my you Hefner story was pretty crazy because first of all, meeting you Hefner in person was similar to meeting Donald Trump in person. That's the best way I could describe it. You was very thin, similar how Donald was when he was young, dressed impeccably. Like, you knew the clothes that you Hefner wore were off the chart expensive. From his socks, to his pants, to his shoes, to his underwear, to his belt, to his cufflinks he had on his shirts, to his tie, to the clip on the tie, and he rarely wore a tie, to any of the jackets he wore over his clothes, everything was the best of the best of the best. His nails looked perfect, his skin looked perfect, his hair was perfect, his eyebrows were perfect, he smelt amazing, and he was like a rock star. He was like a movie star. And he explained the porn business to me that the reason that men and women like to watch porn, and he told the behind the scenes story of it, that it made men feel insecure. Because when you're watching porn, porn does the reverse of what you think it's supposed to do. It makes you insecure. And they knew that, and that was a psychological lore of that. Because the more insecure you, you were about it, the more you watched it. Because there are no real-life situations in a porn movie. Women are not acting like dogs. They're not acting like robots. They're not acting like sluts. They're not going after dicks like they've never got fucked before, like this is the first time they've ever been horny. And that's how that's portrayed. So it's portrayed of a male dominance role, a male dominant individual that owns women, that women are just lusting to fuck. Well, in the real life, that really does not happen, or it will never happen to 99.9% .9 of the world, period. But you explained it to me.
and I was so grateful that I was ready to go to the Playboy Mansion. Spoke to Sandy, and Sandy said, fine, you could fucking go, but it'll be the last time you're ever with me. I'm like, honey, and I tried to connive it, and there was no fucking way, because she knew, and there was no way you could lie to your wife or lie to your girlfriend about, hey, I'm going to the Playboy Mansion, but I'll be good, because that doesn't even fucking work, because that's not happening, because you're not going there to be good. You're going there to fuck Playboy money, bunnies, to fuck everything that walks, and to fuck until you probably die. You're going there to blow it out. So, met you, friends with Al Goldstein, never went to the Playboy Mansion. Because I wasn't about to lose my girlfriend at the time that I was going out with for seven years. That was my bookkeeper that ran my business. Her brother-in-law was running my business. Her father was working for me running my business. Her sister-in-law was my bookkeeper also. So there was no way that I was just going to the Playboy Mansion and blowing all that. It's just not happening. It just wasn't. So I said no. So you Hefner... I remember, you Hefner, I met. You Hefner, I hugged. You Hefner, I shook his hand. I smelt the man. And God, was he good looking. God, did he look like James Bond. God, was he a ladies man. God, was he confident. God, did he have everything in the world you want. And I was very close to running with him. Because Al ran with him. Al was in his circle. Al did not have the money and did not have the prestige. Al was like a dirty U Hefner. But Al had it all, knew it all, and everybody loved Al. And then everybody obviously loved you. And when I was in that company, everybody loved me. I was only with you once. I was, was with Al 30 times in a lot of really crazy, crazy motherfucking things. Met, met Ron Jeremy through him. Yes, Ron is as big as he looks. And he's bigger when you look at him directly in person and you're staring at that fucking cock. It's intimidating. It is fucking intimidating. It is really fucking intimidating. <laughs> Let me tell ya! Holy fuck! Like, put that third arm away! Are you serious? Jesus Christ! So, Al Goldstein allowed me graciously to meet the late, great you Hefner. You, I love you. You, I'm going to miss you. You, you were a living legend and now you will simply be forever the greatest playboy and a legend. Now, what got me into South Oaks was absolutely scary because to eat that much on a consistent basis, to gain 10 pounds a month for 10 straight months is a lot of fucking eating. Because when you start getting heavy, it starts slowing down. When you start getting heavy, you got to just keep eating and eating and eating. So when I went in there, I went in there kicking and fighting because I could not breathe. I was shitting in my clothes. I would say once a week, I would absolutely shit in my clothes, whether we're at a restaurant laughing, and all of a sudden I would just laugh too hard and just shit in my pants. Just fucking shit. Have to go somewhere, rent a hotel room, have extra clothes with me, shower. Disgusting. Because I'm not getting back in the fucking cars, or certain times I would have to take blankets and wrap myself to sit in the cars, because the cars I were there 
were with now were Mercedes, they were Lexuses, they were Rolls Royces, they were top of the line cars, they were limos. So a lot of times I would have to leave my clothes in a restaurant because I just shit all over them. Or leave my clothes at a sporting event in the bathroom because I shit all over them, wrap myself, run out, rent a hotel, shower, buy clothes, shower. So when I went into South Oaks Hospital, it was fucking nuts. And obviously, to gain a grasp on reality, they kept saying, what is eating you, not what you're eating? See, the food they said was a symptom of my fucking problem. The food was a problem, but it wasn't the problem. What was I stuffing? What was I stuffing? Well, obviously, I just told you some of my childhood. So stuffing survival, thinking I was going to die, thinking on Yom Kippur where my mother would be screaming, ah, ah, call the cops, Stu, Stu, call the cops, Stu, call the fucking cops, your father's killing me. Well, maybe when you hear that at three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you don't grow up the same way other people grow up. You grow up a touch fractured a touch demented, a touch disturbed, a touch where, holy fuck, you think you're going to die. And that's probably how it really started my living of like, I'm going to die tomorrow. That's how I live. I live like I'm going to die tomorrow. I don't want to miss anything that's happening anywhere, anytime. I want to be there. I believe I deserve to be there. I want to be there. I'm there. That's why I go to I don't know, 100 concerts a year still in my 50s. That's why I never really miss a major event. I like to be there. I like the hype. But I also think it starts when I was three, four, five, six, seven. You know, this scared little kid. So when I went to South Oaks Hospital and they taught me exactly what's going to go down, which is they taught me a simple system. Just worry about meal to meal to meal. Worry about snack to snack. So they broke it down. Three meals, two snacks. Three meals, two snacks. Three meals, two snacks. You had to commit your food in advance to someone. You had to commit your food to somebody before you ate it. You had to write it down on a piece of paper, see what you're eating, plan your day, call someone, then give it away. Give away what you're eating. Commit to what you're eating. And it'd be a commitment to yourself. It'd be a commitment to your life. And it'd be a commitment to someone else. And then they also wanted you to call three people a day on the phone, say, how you doing? This is what I'm eating. This is my plan. I called this person. I gave my food away. And I'm on the road to recovery. They also made you want to write your feelings on a piece of paper every single day. And this is invaluable lessons to this day. It has saved me time, energy, money, and I would say my life writing my feelings and emotions down on a piece of paper. Whatever it is. If I want to hate someone, I do the hating on paper. If I want to kill someone, I do the killing on paper. If I want to make love to someone, I make love on that paper. And I write my feelings and write my emotions. And then at the end of however long that is, certain days, I'm only going to write for three minutes. Certain days I write for 30 minutes. 
Certain days I write for five hours throughout the day constantly because something's burning inside of me. And I like to act on my feelings. So before I go to jail or do something catastrophic or do something that's going to humiliate me and embarrass me and hurt me forever and be a permanent stamp on my life, I normally, in my mind, think about it, in my mind, play what's going to happen, and then I write it on a piece of paper. So that was one of the major tools they taught me to write it on a piece of paper. And then I got in touch with my feelings and I got in touch with my mother issues, my father issues, my brother issues, family issues, religious issues, life issues. And using the tools of giving away my food every day, planning in advance what I'm eating every day, the, they really did not have a food plan then or now for that matter, but they wanted you to stay away from the white flour. They wanted you to stay away from the sugars, and they wanted you to drink a ton of water. So if any of the food plans that they had, they never gave you anything. They gave you basically, they wanted you to go to a nutritionist, or they had a nutritionist that was going to give you something, but the plan that they really wanted you to stay away from is stay away from sugar. Stay away from complex carbohydrates. Go to brown everything, whole wheat, brown, that type of thing, and drink water. They would not, they didn't want you to drink juice. They didn't want you to drink diet soda. They were a major proponent of water, 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 more water, more water. They wanted to you to weigh and measure your food, to weigh and measure it. Because they would say, how the fuck do you know what you're eating if you're not weighing and measuring your food? How in God's name do you have any fucking idea what you're putting in your mouth? So they want you to weigh and measure your food. So all this I was taught at South Oaks. And it really has helped me in life. It's helped me in business. helped me with relationships. It's helped me with my family. Helped me with my wife. Helped me with my kids. Helped me live life. Helped me to fucking miraculously just, I just ran 23 miles on Wednesday. I'm doing the New York City Marathon. November 5th, but I just had my longest run of my life, another career-long 23.1 miles I ran. That was preceded by 20.6, preceded by 18.6, preceded by 16, preceded by 14, by 12, by 10. So I have one long run a week, and then I run four sixes a week, and that's my week. This week, I'm going to run probably 23.1 and two sixes. I walked four being careful with my body, and my body feels amazing. I see a chiropractor twice a week right after my long run, before and after. I have an amazing yoga session right now that stretches me out. So the things I was taught in South Oaks Hospital, the things I was taught when I met Al Goldstein of Screw Magazine, the things I was taught when I met the late and legendary Hugh Hefner, I still use in my life today. And they're very, very pertinent. So that's why when I try to help people and I tell them exactly what I fucking do, weigh and measure my food every single fucking day. I know roughly what I'm eating every day. I know the ounces. I know the calories every single fucking day. I try to jam as much water down my throat as I can every fucking day. No sugars, no sugars, no sugars. Stay away from sugars. Now the sugar in fruit and the sugar in vegetables and the sugar in whole wheat bread is different than the sugars in candy and cakes and cookies and ice creams. Much different. It's much different. It's broken down different. Your body responds to it differently, so on and so forth.
I try to eat whole wheat everything. Whole wheat rice, whole wheat pasta, whole wheat bread. I try to eat fruit. Fruit and sugar-free ice pops. Fruit and sugar-free ice pops for my sugar craving. Because nothing tastes as good as a tangerine. Nothing tastes as good as a clementine. Nothing tastes as good as a great apple, a great banana, great strawberries, blueberries. So you can get your sugar from your fruit. From your fucking fruit! And I also get the sugars from diet ice pops. 15 calorie sugar-free, fat-free ice pops. Fucking love them. Love them! And all of this, again, was taught at South Oaks Hospital because my brother-in-law threw me in there. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, family. And I also had some amazing experiences with, obviously, Al Goldstein of Screw Magazine and with the late, great Hugh Hefner. When you meet a living legend like you, even though I only met him once, it was just, you know, a stamp on my life. You know that you're in the presence of greatness. You know you're in the presence of a pioneer, of a revolutionary individual, of a man who, regardless of how many people believe the direct opposite of what he believes, he believed in a sexual revolution. He believed the United States was prude. He believes the United States taught sex like it was bad, like it was wrong, and he believed that society was fucking up sexual experiences. I believe the same. That's why I always try to be so sexual, sexually provocative. Because I believe we're so much, so prudes. You tell me we can talk about all the problems in the world, but we cannot talk about coming. We cannot talk about sexual positions, eating ass, licking clit. Now, I'm not talking about watching porn or watching Playboy. I'm talking about with your friends openly, at school openly. Openly, it is so important, sex. Why is it so hidden? So again, Al Goldstein's experience on me really helped me. Maybe a better fuck, a better lay. Taught me things. We experienced it so many times. It was crazy. And, you know, you go to these orgies, you fail a lot of the times. You're not great all the times. Dealing with people with bigger dicks, professionals, pretty much. And then eventually, you know, after the fourth time, you know what you get yourself involved in. You're not intimidated. You know how to get hard. You know how to come and get hard again. You know how to deal with different women and different things. And you go. Not, you know, uh, practice makes perfect. So while you're fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth time, you're pounding away. You're fucking going. Thank you, Al Goldstein. You have to taught me. Sexually, be free. That was his big thing. Sexually, be free. Be free. Be free. Do not be inhibited. Be free. And that's why when I fuck, I fuck like I'm going to die tomorrow. When I eat ass, I eat ass like I'm going to die tomorrow. I lick clit. I lick clit like it's the last clit I'm ever going to lick. And for me, that's how I roll. That's what brings me the intensity and the energy and the level that I'm able to perform always at an extremely high level. Because that's the only way I know how to do it. I perform at a high level. And hanging around with great people always brings it to that fucking level. So for today, that's basically where we're at. 
coming into Yom Kippur tonight, for all the Jews in the world that have to fast, I hope your fast is an easy one. I hope your fast is an easy fast, as limited struggles as possible. I hope that God opens his book of life for another year for you and your loved ones and your family. And I could say that all the podcasts we've done up to now have really been received so well. So thank you so much. Get the word out. Source with Stu Finer. Please listen to me always. Obviously, Sports Advisors was my TV show that Al Pacino, Matthew McConaughey, and Jeremy Piven were on in the movie Two for the Money. Yes, Al played me. Yes, Renee Russo played my wife. Yes, Matthew McConaughey played a disgruntled salesman that worked for me in real life. Yes, Jeremy Piven was a pseudo brother-in-law, Kevin Duffy. Yes. And they were on my Sports Advisors TV show in the movie. So again, we're ready to roll with a lot of things. I'd like you to follow me on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Snapchat is where I just blow it out. 10-second videos about my life constantly. Really funny. I'm psycho, I'm sexual, I'm crazy, I'm funny. You can buy all my merchandise on my website. And now that it's a lock, I'll be able to run the marathon. I also have up something there where I have to raise $3,000 to run the marathon because I was two, it's about a year late actually applying for it, so I couldn't get in, so I had to go to this UJA fund. And if you go to my website and you watch the link, the money goes to save 70 countries' children that are starving. So it's a real good cause. The money goes to good use. It's not going in my pocket. So it goes directly to the UJA, so you can put your credit card in and pay them. So thank you. Spread the word about that. I'd love for you, for you to just go there and just put some money in. Whatever it is, put a fucking dollar. Put 10000 I don't give a fuck. So that's at stewfinder.com. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. As always, I love you. God bless you. I'm Stu Finder. You're fucking...